Bonjour et bienvenue euh, à Demandez Rexam, le podcast qui répond à votre question du Rexam Club de football. Je suis Marc Griffiths, le roi de Pédagogue, et malheureusement, euh, il n'y aura pas une queue de dragon cette semaine parce que les autres sont pathétiques. Oui, 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 oui. Je m'entends. Don't, don't tell them I said that, please. I feel a little bad. Look, I'm in France. And I just thought, oh, what the heck? You know, it's siesta time, but I don't need no sleep. So let's crack on. Did I say crap on then? Let's crack on with some proper Ask Rexme stuff, because there are some great questions that have been coming again. I've got my water, I've got my Nesquik, and as French as they come. So let's have a look at the first question. Say that, let's get my laptop so everything's working. Come on, laptop, the mousy, nasty thing. Et voila. It's Jim from Monticello. And he says he wants three things answered. An update on Paul Mullen. Will he be back in October? Updates on the cop. Doesn't look like much has happened. And will you be hearing us on any of the away video broadcasts? Well, don't know, don't know and yes is the simple answer I gave on Twitter. Uh, to elaborate a little bit, Paul Mullen, I don't know. I mean, the club are rightly playing their cards pretty close to their chest. Plus, you really don't want to take a chance with them. Uh, with an injury like this as well. So he'll be back when he's ready. We know Phil Parkinson seems to be very optimistic, but let's just make sure he's right and he comes back as the Paul Mullen we all know and love rather than the player that we're pushing too hard. As for the cop, I'm not aware of any issues. Um, got a whole year to build a stand. You know? Liverpool have built a bigger, built a bigger one in the, in the summer. So I don't feel too worried about that. Certainly don't. And then the third one, yeah, the plan, as I understand it, is that now the Wrexham player commentaries will be the regular commentaries on all the streaming. So, oh, that's uh, kind of cool, isn't it? Okay, so, second question. Janie Lightning. There's quite a few comments about Foster leaving, freeing up the wage bill. How are the players' wages structured? Does it fluctuate depending on minutes, starts, or matches played? Or is it a season flat amount paid weekly? What bonuses are there? Right. Great question. Now, the norm would be the last option you said, a weekly salary. We uh, So a weekly payment uh, based on an annual salary for the length of the contract the players signed. Having said that, bonuses do play a part in contracts. And I mean, let's be honest, it's... It's an agreement between two parties, and whatever agreement they come to, both sides are happy, they can sign to it. So bonuses do certainly come into it. Players often have assist bonuses if they set a goal up, which I always think is a bit daft because that depends on the other players and their team taking their chances, doesn't it? Uh, you'll see as well goal bonuses, uh, appearance bonuses now. You might think, why would you sign up for appearance-based bonuses? I saw, I've forgotten who said it, but there was another person who replied saying it would be a bit daft because you're putting your salary, in essence, 
in the hands of one person, the manager. Yeah, but uh, think about the different circumstances. For example, say you are a player who is known to be injury prone and teams don't want to take a chance on you. They know you're good, but they also know that you might break down through injury. You might end up getting, say, a, a smaller basic salary and then appearance bonuses that build up and build up. Uh, you know, so, so that if you stay fit, you'll get a good amount of money. If you don't stay fit, the club haven't taken that much of a risk and not stuck with the salary you would have asked for if you were fully fit. So that sort of thing can happen. And it can be used as an incentive, just like the assistant uh, goal bonuses. You know, if you get to play all season, you'll get paid more. So you know, raise your standards and make sure that you're on the ball. And there are talk of you know, bonuses and different things in contracts. Um which, you know, might surprise you. Because like I said, if the two parties agree, the two parties agree. I mean, there's, there's things like promotion bonuses, obviously. Uh, clean sheet bonuses for goalkeepers, yeah. Well, again, that's quite reliance on the opposition, isn't it? And then also, there's... Uh, what was I going to say there? Oh, yeah. It's often common these days to have a relegation reduction in the contract. So that if your team goes down, your wage goes down. But there's some strange ones. One, one that came up about 15 odd years ago was image rights as well and yeah which I'm trying to remember which transfer it was, there was a big money transfer, I feel like it might have been Rooney, where in order to fit him with financial fair play the team buying him, which I guess must have been Man United, uh, gave him well it was a contract renewal but they, they, they basically gave him a pay cut but gave him all his image rights so all every time his image was used on any media, he'd be getting the money rather than his club. So that can be quite valuable. So there's lots of different little things dotted around, you know. If you agree the deal, you agree the deal. Um, in terms of Wrexham's wage structure, I've got to say, I mean, I was given the impression that Foster actually wasn't on a huge amount of money. Now, that was last season, so I don't know if something was renegotiated there. Um, but uh, we have financial fair play to fit into ourselves now, unlike last season. But the fact is, when our turnover is so big, it's a percentage of our turnover, that we, I don't think we really have a big issue there, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, his wage will be off. We'll, I assume, bring somebody else in. So uh, it'll have some effect, but not maybe a massive one. That's my suspicion. Ah, le sonnerie. Anyway. Okay, now this one. D. Wrexham Mash. I never know how to say your name, by the way. Um, All-time EPL saves leader. That's Ben Foster's made more saves in the Premier League than anyone else. And battling the Bells, yeah. And probably the most epic save with everything on the line. Um, he's got a wonderful gift, which I couldn't fit onto this, which shows him saving two pies at that Notts County peg while the commentary team uh, com uh, celebrating. Um, he says, is this the greatest save you've ever seen live? If not, name me your best. You know, you've, you've taken me on a philosophical journey asking me this question. I realise reading this that iconic saves aren't that common, are they? They really aren't. Goals stick in the mind, saves not so much, and I'm saying that as, a, as an ex-goalkeeper of sorts. I think I would say 
the best save that I've seen live for Rex, and maybe it's also to do with its significance, just like Foster's, was the semi-final of the FA Trophy in 2013. 2013? 2012? 2013. Chris Maxwell in goal for Wrexham at Gainsborough Trinity, who are the lower down. We beat them 3-1 at the race course in the first leg, so, you know, we're looking pretty good. And we score again pretty swiftly at Gainsborough at the start of the second leg. So we're 4-1 up, and you think, yeah, we're cruising this. They were a decent size, but, you know, we got them there. No, we aren't. They scored two more goals and were absolutely battering us in the second half. Another goal takes it to extra time. They got their home fans behind them and they were making a terrific noise. And you're sort of, hmm, if we let in a third, then extra time can be very difficult. And there was a shot right at the end from inside the box around the penalty spot. The penalty area is packed full of players. And my recollection of it, commentating on it at the time, was the ball just whistling into the, the net or so it looked like, through a crowd, and then suddenly Maxwell's hand just comes up through the crowd and, and pushes it over the bar. I don't know how he saw it. I just don't know how on earth he managed to see it. He must have seen it so late, and his reflexes were just unbelievable to push that over. We won 2-1, and then we went on and won the final and won the trophy. Um, the footage of it, really, I mean, I could put a link to it under this, but if I'm honest, you'll be disappointed because the camera's like 60 miles back. So you're not going to be able to see very much, I'm afraid. Just trust me, it was a hell of a save and it was really, really important. Now, in British culture, you will get comments about Gordon Banks. Gordon Banks was the England goalkeeper when they won the World Cup in 1966. And then in 1970, he makes a brilliant save against Pele, which is always referred to as like the best save ever. Um, I mean, I think... It's a very good save. Best save ever? I'm not so sure. Um, they're playing Brazil in the next World Cup, like I said, in Mexico. I think the occasion helps you. I think it was reasonable to say. Uh, not that I remember it. But apparently it was. they were by far the two best teams in the tournament. And it was the best game. It was 1-0 to Brazil in the end. But Banks makes an amazing save from the greatest player in the world, Pele. It's a cross. So Banks is at his near post. The cross is at the far post. And Pele is quite close in at the far post and heads really powerfully, powerfully downwards. And Banks, magnificent footwork, somehow manages to sprint across the line, lunge. And although the ball isn't going into the bottom corner, somehow get enough strength in his wrists to actually save it by pushing it up over the bar. It is a pretty phenomenal save. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's a beauty. It's become almost a cliche that whenever anyone makes any sort of save nowadays, oh, it's Gordon Banks save. Oh. Look up. If I remember, I'll stick them in the, the, the details in the description, but I'll probably forget. Let's be honest. You know me by now. Um, that. Off the top of my head, I feel like maybe... <laughs> oh, more bells. Um, the best save I've seen is David Seamaning, a goalkeeper of the sort of 90s, who let in, of course, the goals for Arsenal when Wrexham beat them in the cup. Uh, against Sheffield United in the FA Cup semi-final where the ball's gone past him it seems and he somehow managed to stretch backwards and hook the ball away as a magnificent save in a big match. Okay, let's look at something else. Oh, at least those bells didn't last so long. Right, now then. 
Give me lightning. What's the rolling ball foul given against Ben Foster? Yeah, basically what it is, is when you restart the game, free kick, goal kick, anything like that, off the floor, the ball's got to be still. You're not allowed to hit a rolling ball. So I, I yeah. vaguely remember it happening, I don't know. I, I just assume Foster must have like rolled the ball to where if he should be stepped up and he's kicked it before it stopped rolling. But the ball's got to be stationary when you restart the game. Um, it's not a major offence. You're not going to get booked for it. Also, unless you do it over and over again as a time-wasting manoeuvre. But that'd be very obvious. Um, and so he's only penalised by having to take it again. I do remember it now. He's trying to play a quick ball forwards. Uh, quick free kick. Which refs will normally allow. Um, uh, but the ball hadn't, you know, it was such a quick free kick, the ball hadn't stopped moving. That's what it was, wasn't it? So we had to take it again and just had to roll it short to somebody. Because he was, um, Swindon had recovered their shape, hadn't they? So there was no point in trying it again. There's no, like I say, the only punishment is take her again. The, um, I, I have occasionally seen players so urgent to take a quick free kick that they've actually hit not just a rolling ball, but a bouncing ball. It's rare and it's funny. Um, but yeah, faster. Yeah, routine, rolling ball. You can't hit that to take a free kick or a goal kick. Um, Idina, now, where do you see McLean fitting in the team at the moment? I'd argue Mendy and Lee have been our best players this season, and given they're in McLean's natural positions, I can't see him replacing either of them. That's a great question. And I'm wrestling with that same idea. I mean, the fact that you got injured has delayed our chance to find out what's going on. What's, what is it with bells in this town? They love it. They just don't, they know I'm doing this. And they're going after me. McLean, yeah. When I saw we bought him, I thought we bought him as a left wing back. Um, I really like Mendy a lot, but I wondered whether, you know, maybe he's not totally secure sometimes defensively, sometimes he makes little errors, and whether that McLean was seen as somebody could bring in. Um, Having said that, I totally agree. Mendy's had a very good start to the season. He's still had the occasion where full-backs have got to him or wingers have gone to him a bit more. So I could see it, but I can't see Mendy losing his place at the moment when he's creating so many chances. Likewise, tucking him into midfield. Lee, I mean, he's our best player at the moment, isn't he? He's, he's absolutely superb. So, yeah, it's interesting one, isn't it? But then, let's be honest, Parkinson has improved this team by bringing good players in when we've already got good players for certain positions. So, he's done it again, hasn't he? I think that's the, the truth of it. And, yeah, probably someone we enjoy watching will become less of a regular player. Could we shuffle the midfield, I suppose? You could have Lee on the other side, although I think we play to his strengths by having him on the left side of the midfield three. We could change our shape. You know, Lee likes playing behind the front two. And also, I mean, look at what we did on uh, at um, Wimbledon, that's it, where we changed our shape completely at Palmer up front and Lee and McLean either side. McLean being used on the right so he can cut onto his left foot and be a goal threat. Now, that, that was quite a surprise to me that we changed our system so much. I don't know if I describe it as a complete success, but... Maybe he is looking at altering things around a little bit, who knows? Right, be a bear beard man, check out this podcast, teach me how to wreck some, it's a good one. 
Um, I searched after the match and couldn't find a higher scoring draw for Wrexham before in Wrexham's history. Correct. That was a, that five all was insane. It was the highest scoring draw in the history of Wrexham Football Club. We've never had a, a five all draw before. We had four alls. I can remember some memorable four alls. And um, the first game I commentated on for the local radio station was a four all. It was Wrexham against Plymouth Argyle. And there was a very complicated commentary setup where basically I was reliant on the studio listening out for me. I couldn't contact them directly. It was very odd. It was just a, basically a, a, an open line, which was a, a, a landline to the radio station um, with an open mic. And I just keep shouting, studio, studio, studio. But the thing is as well, they also asked, could I cover it for the Plymouth radio station and the Plymouth TV station? Because, you know, Plymouth's a long way from Rexo and they didn't want to pay to send somebody up here. So, up here. So, um, yeah, I was sort of hoping for a really nice quiet game. And instead it was an insane 4 old draw. And at the end, Plymouth's goalkeeper, the famous ex-Liverpool goalkeeper, Bruce Grobelar, saved the penalty. So everything was kicking off and I was having to report it to three sources. And my most important source, of course, was a local radio station. And I had to get their attention first. So it was, oh, it was a nightmare. Goals would fly in and I hadn't told different outlets about them. And I had to, oh... It was an experience, I'm telling you. Baptism of fire. Pamela. All I know about coaching is from Ted Lasso and Parky. Trust me, Pamela. Learn from Parky. Don't learn from Ted Lasso. <laughs> Please. The, I'm, I, I'm, not going to, I'm not trying to be sort of disparaging, but that series veered further into fiction as, as the season stacked up in terms of the football part of it. Um, the first season of it, I thought, yeah, actually, to be fair, apart from that mad conclusion in the last season where they just did American football, um, yeah, it sort of was all right in portraying the game. But after that, no, it got silly. So, yeah, sits a parky. So don't claim to know much. You've been harsh on yourself, but I don't think the impact of Mullen's absence is being weighed properly. Parky's completely rebuilding the team with him. I'm not worried. Players like Jake Bickerstaff get to shine now. See, I'm inclined to agree. I understand, you know, we, we are looking at other strikers, and I understand, you know, if we get them, they'll be good quality strikers. Never hurts to have good players in the squad. But I'm enjoying Jake Bickerstaff's efforts. He's, he's been tremendous, hasn't he? And I'm glad to see him get the opportunity. The plan, as Parkinson has confirmed, is probably that when Mullins back, Bickerstaff will go on loan to complete his or continue his development. But he's made a, a case, hasn't he, for being a, a first-team player. And I'm sure you've seen the comments that at half-time in the well, uh, Swindon match, Parkinson tore a strip off the team and said the only player who's playing well, really, is Bickerstaff. So, yeah, he's really done well, hasn't he? I haven't said that. Um, yeah, I agree with you as well in terms of... I don't think we should be too panicky. I mean, let's be honest. We scored 12 goals in our first four league games, which, if I remember correctly, is the best we've ever done since joining the Football League in 1921. So this is the most prolific start we've had in over a century. So that's not that bad, is it? You know, We do miss Mullen, and I've, got, I've said this before, but I, I feel that the Milton Keynes game in particular felt like the sort of game where he'd fill his boots, the sort of spaces he occupies were often empty when Mengay Dons tracked back. And the Swindon game as well, and they were panicking, weren't they? Well, well it creates more panic. Um, so, yeah, okay, we may have got more out of those games. 
but still, I mean, yeah, it, it, we're scoring a lot of goals. The problem is when we, when we haven't got the ball, haven't we? Let's be honest. So I agree. I think we've looked for new ways to develop things. We're getting goals from midfield. Elliot Lee is flying. So, yeah, it'd be wonderful to have him back. But I think we've coped pretty well in terms of going forwards without him. Jim, again, says, besides football, soccer, what's the kids from the UK play? Well, there was a reply which pretty much summed it up. Um, would be cricket. I mean, you've got to understand, though, football's king. Football's massive in Britain. Premier League footballers are huge celebrities. They are, you know, internationally as well because Premier League really is the biggest league in terms of international coverage and interest. So football is king, no question. You know, you, you'll find lots and lots of people who will want to talk to you about football. Cricket is, it's firstly, it's a summer game. It divides people. Some people find it a bit slow, a bit boring. There are a lot of new formats, which are much quicker and more exciting, which for anyone interested in cricket is much more accessible. Um, but... Yeah, cricket has a decent following. Rugby has popularity in patches. I think the way I would put this is that there are traditional hotbeds of rugby, like South Wales, um, and, oh, and London were part of it. There are some, as well, I should say, there are two different types of rugby. Rugby union, which is the sort of public schoolboy uh, sport, and rugby league, which is, uh, I, I find, I don't really enjoy rugby at all, but I find rugby league to be a bit more entertaining, a bit more flow to it. And that's basically played in a band across Lancashire and Yorkshire, going down into Cheshire. Beyond there, you're not going to get much uh, real huge interest in rugby, although it's become like an event thing, you know, like uh, the Olympics or something like that, or for British people, Wimbledon. Nobody watches tennis for 50 weeks of the year. They show no interest in it. And then suddenly for two weeks, everyone's mad on tennis. And it's all over all the main uh, terrestrial channels, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, network channels, if you will. Okay, now we're recording a murder. Or something awful has happened to a goose. Anyway. Um, yeah, so, so and, then, and then once Tech Wimbledon ends, everyone says, wasn't that wonderful? We must rekindle our interest again in 50 more weeks. You know, so rugby's a bit like that. When they have the big tournament, the Six Nations, or the World Cup, then suddenly everybody seems to be interested in it. But then club rugby doesn't tend to get particularly big crowds at all. And there's other sports. Cycling's become more popular as a pastime and as a, a spectator sport. I love cycling personally. Um, but I wouldn't go so far as to say it's it's become really mainstream. There are some very good British cyclists who had terrific success, and they don't get huge amounts of uh, coverage, although they have won the big uh, BBC Sports Personality of the Year award, you know, which happens every December. So they must be you know, paid attention to a bit, but it's not a massive amount. And boxing, I think, has become a lot less popular in, in the... 90s, it was massive. All these terrific British boxers, Ben Watson and Eubank, and uh, what's his name, the Irish guy who was. Oh, I've forgotten his name. Huh? That's ridiculous. But they were all in the same weight, and they used to have these huge event fights on Saturday nights. But soon after that, it went on to satellite TV, so the equivalent to cable TV, 
and now is essentially sort of broadcasting more to a committed audience. I used to love boxing. I used to box at university, and now I couldn't name many current boxers because of that switch. I'm not willing to pay for the sports channels, and then an extra £20 every time there's a big fight. It, that doesn't interest me, so I've, I've dropped it, really. Yeah, that's a, that's a, I think that's probably a, a reasonable summary of the sports that, that people watch or play. Let's move on. Oops. Oh, Daniel Dunor, I've been desperate to answer this question. I deliberately didn't answer it on the internet. And I, I'm a bit sad. I may make a video to prove this. And just to make sure I'm right, I wanted to ask this question, really, before... Uh, when I was able to go to the race course, not in France, so I could show you. But he says he has a, he has a picture which I keep getting stuck when I was doing the final whistle. So I, it's supposed to be uh, rotating lots of pictures of the game, and it seems to just get stuck on this one and one other seat. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a picture of the numbers of the seats in the aisle, and it says go left to seat 16 to 29. And then go right for seats 32 to 59. And Daniel says, no doubt this will get drowned out in the wake of Fozzie's announcement. Never. This is, these are the questions that Ask Wrexham are built on. But he's watching Final Whistle. And he has to ask Wrexham, where are seats 30 and 31? What happened to those people? Well, it was a dark and windy night in the summer of 03. When two people tragically fell off the back of the stand. And, you know, you've never had those seats just out of respect for them. But it's sad that if you go to the race course in the middle of the night and the moon is bright and the wind is still, you can hear them falling to their depths. And one says to the other, oh, We never should have bought that centre-back. He's useless. True story. Okay, maybe not. Although I will say that there's some great photos, look them up, of the Barcelona ground years ago with lots of people sitting on the back of the top of the stand. So it's a picture taken from outside the ground and all you can see are people's backsides in a big long row on the top of the wall because they're, um, because they're all sat on the, on the back wall. Oh, here we go again. On the back wall. Um, and that's why Barcelona, uh, one of their nicknames is is the cools, which is uh, Catalan for the bums, because you'd walk past Barcelona in the old days and you'd see loads of backsides all hanging off the top of the stand. Fact. Anyways, the real reason, and like I said, I'd love to make a video, is that if you go up to the top of that stand, the back row is intact. So the aisle goes up, and then the very back row has got seats 30 and 31. Yeah? So... They are there, they're just not in that photo. And there's no, no point in telling people if they've got those two seats and you know, 30 and 31 at the top, you're getting an extra sign, are you? So the answer, I'm afraid, is as simple as that. Unless I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Janie Lightning, how are players ranked if they have the same number of goals and team points now? Janie, there's no answer to this in a way, because you were saying this in response to this tweet, Wrexham Phoenix who's bragging quite rightly about the performance of some of our players in league leaders. Top scorers in the league so far. Lee is third with four goals. Jones, 29th, and Bickerstaff, well, says 30th, but he'd be, he'd be equal, wouldn't they? On two. 
and then top assists, Mendy first of three, and then Lee 31st with one. Now, yeah, it's screen grabbed those stats, so there's a at a table showing all the top scorers and the games they'd played. So top scorer Will Evans of Newport County played four games, scored five, and Lee is one behind. And then also the top assists, Jacob Mendy top played four games, three assists. I mean, these aren't really, shall we say, official statistics in the sense of having to sort them out. In things like the Golden Boots in the World Cup, if you have more than one player equal as top scorer, um, I think they're now brought in that you look at how many assists each one has got as a tiebreaker. But those are just stats on a website. They, they don't really need to have any order as such. In fact, yes, I would say, personally, you know, they've got Jacob Mendy first on three, then you've got Joel Tabiner of Crew on two, and then you've got Luke Bolton sorted on two. So they're all equal seconds. There's nothing developed dividing them is there and it's just a, you know, a, a bit of fun on the website to see who's scoring the most, the most goals and who isn't so um, yeah there's no real need to divide to divide players up like that when you say team points i assume you mean how many points the team wins when that player is playing you will find stats telling you that but it's not a commonly used statistic to try and to gauge players right jim asks, I'm sure the lads are grateful not to have a Tuesday game, but waiting until Saturday to see him on the pitch is killing me. How do you pass the time? I'll tell you how I pass the time. Doing all this stuff. <laughs> but honestly, it does take up quite a lot of time. I love it. Please don't get me wrong. Um, I'll be researching the opposition and yeah, getting me prepped on, if you will. And apart from that, I quite like watching TV and watching other sports and things like that, really. I can't really, I'm not any more exciting than that. Oh, it's tragic, isn't it? I like going out for a cuppa, but a lot of the reason I go for a cup of coffee is because I'll then bring my laptop and do some of that preparation I was talking about. Because I always feel like if you're working in a coffee shop with a cup of coffee, it doesn't qualify as working and you feel happy to do it. I also play with the cats a lot. I've got three cats, Laszlo, Lottie and Pixie, and we have a right laugh. So, yeah. Oh, Mrs. Griffiths, she's all right. And Ben, me lads, oh, they're okay. So, don't worry. I keep myself busy. Daniel Dunno again. Now, that's a great question. I've been doing my research on this, both internet-based and by asking questions with an expert. How many Welsh natives speak Welsh? Is it a normal part of schooling? Right. Now, luckily enough, there was a census taken at the end of December last year. So we've got accurate figures here. 29.5% of Welsh people speak Welsh, uh, which is 900,000 people. Now, I have a couple of questions about that, which, which weren't clear in the article I read, which was by the people who did the census. So, you know, it wasn't just lazy journalism. Define speak Welsh. It didn't say fluently. So, and it also said that the biggest age group was young people. Now, this comes on to your second question. Is it taught? Yes. Um, unless there are exceptional circumstances, which normally is you've come from a, another country quite late on in the education process, and there's just no chance, you know, you've got to pick up English. 
not learn a new language from scratch, which is very different from English as well, and, and very different really from an awful lot of languages. Um, you will be expected to learn Welsh at least until you are 15. The last year of secondary school is 15 to 16. That's year 11. Year 10 is the second last, and it's compulsory, barring those extreme circumstances, that you have got to learn Welsh. Um, in primary schools, pupils tend to pick up very enthusiastically. So, like I said, asking this survey, an awful lot of the young kids will say, yeah, I speak Welsh. Um, in secondary school, kids tend to vary in their enthusiasm, if I'm honest with you. Um, the school I work in insists that everyone goes through to get a qualification in Welsh. Uh, so we go beyond just that fourth-year thing, I'm sure a lot of places do. We have a Welsh-language primary school and a Welsh-language secondary school in Wrexham. There's plenty of those around Wales as well. Um, but in terms of, yeah, how many people speak Welsh? If you're in eastern Wales, then you certainly won't need to have any Welsh. And the, you know, the, the lingua franca is English. Now, most people, according to the survey, speak Welsh is in Cardiff, but then there's a lot of jobs created by having a legal necessity to have Welsh uh, available on all official documents. So everything's got to be bilingual. So, you know, there's a lot of jobs in the civil service of the Welsh Parliament, basically, which will draw people in. Um, the highest percentages, though, are up in the northwest. So you go up to Gwynedd, the bit that sticks out. And you go to Anglesey, the island above it, and there you'll find the most common uh, sort of frequency of Welsh speakers. You will also often find Welsh spoken in the streets, which you, you, won't, you, you will hear in Wrexham, you will hear in Eastern Wales, but not as much. It's not, not a common thing, I wouldn't say, but in Northwest Wales, you probably would do. You know, Welsh has got a, a very checkered history. A difficult history. Um, it's believed to be one of the very oldest languages existing in the world. But around the start of, well, the end of the 1700s, and this revolution kicks in, there's a big influx of English workers into Wales, which carries on for a good century. Because they want to work in the coal mines, they want to work in the steelworks, and that dilutes Welsh massively. Also, you know how it is. You know, the English conquered the Welsh. Henry VIII actually uh, combined England and Wales in the 1500s. And therefore, Welsh is viewed suspiciously, isn't it? And so uh, there were times when Welsh was outlawed, or at least strongly discouraged, because it may be seen as a language of insurgency, perhaps, or just of suspicion. Um, you know, what's that bloke saying? I run the factory, what's he saying about me? Anyway, um, during the 19th century primarily, but it did go on to about the 1920s, there was a thing called the Welsh Knot, N-O-T, which was basically children being told they could not speak Welsh in, in their schools, and there would be a piece of wood with either W-N or Welsh Knot inscribed on it with a rope around it, and a child who's heard speaking Welsh will have it put around their necks and they've got to wear that as a sort of shameful thing until the next child is heard speaking Welsh and then they'll put it 
onto them. So the Welsh being discouraged massively, and then often the, the people who wore it at the end of the day would receive a punishment. So Welsh received this, these constant blows, and throughout the 20th century until, what, the 90s or 2000s, perhaps? Yeah, the 90s, I think it's fair to say, was a very a language in decline. Uh, you know, I mean, in the 80s when I was a kid, the Thatcher government had no interest in cultural affairs like that. So, yeah, Welsh was really collapsing. But there was a lot of protest in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, some good, very vitriolic poems, if you like that sort of thing. Have a look at R.S. Thomas, who was a major figure in Welsh, uh, well, Welsh independence, actually, as well as fighting for Welsh culture. And he was certainly not shy of uh, saying what he thought of people damaging the Welsh language or Welsh culture. Uh, he's a great, one of the great poets of the world. Um, so he was there writing these things with lots of vandalism, you know, all the road signs then were in English only, and people would then vandalise them by painting the Welsh versions underneath, or over the English, rather. Yeah, I remember seeing signs that like, sprayed out completely and they just put the Welsh version underneath. Uh, there were, uh, you'll have seen the, the painting on the side of Scythe Seren, the coffee to Erin, um, which is there's a copy of it now in the States, I saw, uh, which is a, a protest about a Welsh village was drowned, basically. They evacuated everyone, but you had no choice to create a reservoir for drinking water for England. And that became a major sort of issue of protest. <clears throat> and there's always the cliche in the 70s and 80s of English people buying holiday homes in Wales on the coast and Welsh separatists burning them down in the winter when there's no one in them. Um, there used to be a famous advert when I was a kid which would say, which was for coal fires, I think, saying, come home to a real fire. And I remember a TV show where this really caught on, uh, so parodied it, saying, come home to a real fire, buy a holiday home in Wales. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of anger, and, then, and the law was passed in 1992. I'm slightly surprised. It was just after Thatcher, still a Conservative government, or John Major, who is still a, a significant figure in politics now, arguing against Brexit. It was much more of a common-sense Tory than... Thatcher, for example, the current punch. So uh, he basically brought in rules which have been added to uh, to say there should be bilingual signs all over Wales. Uh, under Tony Blair, the uh, next Prime Minister, Labour Prime Minister, the country was, uh, well, he decentralised, so Wales got its own parliament which could make certain decisions. Other decisions, the big decisions are left still with London, but there's certain autonomy, autonomy in Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Um, and that has brought about a renaissance in Welsh speaking. So I, I hope I didn't sound a bit dismissive before. I'm saying define, speak Welsh. I didn't mean to at all, but yeah, I don't know how accurate that figure is, but it is certainly true that Welsh feels much more like a thriving language, which has got the support of a lot of people and, and a major cultural significance compared to where we were when I was a kid in the 80s. Um, other little points, because I've done research personally, I've been talking to Mrs. G, because Mrs. Griffiths is a first language Welsh speaker. Something which I thought was a bit rare. Well, it is, but she's, she, I asked her about that, and does she know about other people being first language Welsh speakers? She said that, essentially, there's, uh, there are definitely pockets 
a Welsh speaker. It's obviously the further west you go, as I said, that more likely you'll come across people whose first language is Welsh. But Mrs Griffiths from Bold, 10 miles down the road from Wrexham, and she's, her first language is Welsh. So it's certainly it's, it's, it's a, a growing language after a lot of suffering, I think, so fairest way to put it. Justin says, what's the cra craziest move you've seen a Wrexham player use to get by an opponent? Oh, right. Um, I, I want to say, and I've seen this happen a lot, but it still felt crazy to me. Carl Conley was a brilliant player for us throughout the 90s. Very skillful, very, really good left foot. And he had this trick, which he used to do quite a lot, which was he'd back into a defender and then he'd flick the ball over his own shoulder and over the defender and then spin and get to us on the other side before his opponent could react. And he seemed to always catch people out with it. It's beautiful. He did it. Kind of routinely. You know, it's really easy just to nick it across and beating people. It was absolutely sensational. Um, and the other one that came into my mind was a guy who played for Wrexham in the 80s called John Bowden. He was our captain for a bit. His nickname was Animal. I think it was because he looked like a drummer at Sesame Street, the Muppets one, I was. And he did this thing, which I think in the modern days of scouting, he would not get away with because it was sort of basic, but he did it really well and it always seemed to work. He'd go down the wing and there wasn't a chance for a cross and he played a lot of his time on the left side for Wrexham, but he was quite right-footed. So he'd go down the wing and if he couldn't get the cross in, he'd allow defenders to gather round him by the corner flag, which obviously is not what you want. So you might have two people on him. And then he just suddenly, well, I say suddenly, I recall it being not quite, not quite slow motion, but it wasn't super fast. He turned between them, and suddenly he was away between them, and he would repeat this very simplistic approach over and over again, and somehow it always worked. So I don't know how he got away with it, but he definitely, definitely did. Right, let's have a squeeze. Oh, I just had to show this wonderful thing from Normando. Normando, I have not noticed your tweets before and this is a beautiful debut he says i inhale the chaos like it is everything i need like it's my last breath, fresh breath because i'm not sure i'll ever know anything that's beautiful again beautiful poem referring obviously to wrexham um obviously you know i mean uh, don't inhale too deeply because over the years trust me it's been bad for my health as well <laughs> following wrexham and our last one is a plug, hope you don't mind, but look if you're in the Wrexham area. Mike, the ref's sanctuary, what a good man he is. They're having an open day and dog show, 11 till 3, on Sunday the 23rd of September. It's Mill Lane, Bradley. Oh, family day out, free entry, meet the horses, ponies, donkeys, pigs, goats and chickens too. Barbecue, cakes, tombola, pony rides, dog show, craft stalls. Can I just say... This is such a wonderful, wonderful charity. And you've, see, um, you've seen in Dragonheart the brilliant videos that Mike makes. Anyway, amongst the animals, if you get a chance, get down. I'm going there. Tell you, I'm going to hang around there as long as I can. It looks brilliant. But yeah, support Mike the Ref's wonderful, wonderful charity. And with that, I think it's time to say au revoir, mes enfants. I'm going to go into the room. I was I actually, I didn't, I, you'll have noticed that little break when I was talking about the Industrial Revolution. Um, and that was because the owners of the hotel came out, they are lovely, and said there's been a power cut in the whole area. 
So um, I go back and experience the troglodyte condition. Right? See you next time. Adios, muchachos. I mean, au revoir.